sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you here are those used to research our show and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Okay, so it's going to be like that then. You're not going to speak? I told you, I'd be happy to read the quotes, but that's uh, it. This intro is part of the show. I said hello. There's not another good time to do this. I, I can't wait until you're in a better mood. <laughs> Maybe you should have thought of that in January. Okay, well, there you go. If you want to explain yourself, if you want to air your grievances, that can be part of it. We've certainly talked out some issues in the past in this little segment. Listeners like to know their hosts and their concerns. That's the point of these... I will read the quotes and do a good job at it. That's my job. You always do an excellent job. You as an old one, or... One of the dozens of conversations you've edited out. It is actually part of the show. You're the editor. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Hello. 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 I hope our listeners seem to be talking to that chair. More or less. Mm. Honey nut butter candy out there. It's just confusing. Or I could tell it was an imaginary listener, but only a little. I see. Hello. 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 X rearranging everything, pulling things out with all the scratch marks and everything. I recognize the fish, but I'm the one, not the ship in the bottle. Why is book torn open late? Bird watch. That's all you're doing on those. I was happy to see you had beeswax house. Beeswax. Well, I hadn't thought of that. Hello. 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 It's not the same, but it's also not that different. Anyway, episode 62, The Lover's Head. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes, and I'll have more on all that at the end of our program. On 
sinister here, just two brothers looking out for their sister, planning a little hunting party to get rid of a suitor they consider unworthy. This uh, English murder ballad, given the full gothic treatment here by the transmutations, is called the Bramble Briar. It's uh, also called the Jealous Brothers, or uh, most frequently in Bruton Town, a locality in Somerset where the tale is uh, usually set. But it can also transpire in other locations, Bridgeport in this version, Newport in some American versions. It's uh, usually among brambles and briars where the body is dumped, but also often a dry ditch or some other lonesome wild place. In a version called The Constant Farmer's Son, found more in Ireland and America, it's a stream, the suitor here coming from a lower status uh, farmer's family, and courting a wealthy merchant's daughter with a brothers who would consider a lord a more suitable mate for the sister. Often, the suitor is actually the family servant who not only aspires beyond his rank, but is uh, seen slipping into the sister's bedchamber at night. As uh, no one really bothered recording such things till the 19th century, we really don't know how old the song is, but as we'll see, it may well have roots going back to a tale from the 14th century which is where our episode's theme comes in, um, that being uh, couples in which one lover loses their head while the other retains it as a cherished uh, post-mortem keepsake. It's our romantic holiday-themed episode, something we hope you'll be listening to on or around Valentine's Day. While uh, missing that beheading found in the ballad's 14th century prototype, the uh, song does still have its macabre elements. Uh, the night after the brothers return from their hunt without the servant, whom they claim to have just uh, lost along the way, the sister either encounters the dead man's ghost or has a dream in which he urges her to seek out his corpse, which she does the next morning. The only love that she admires she found in the ditch where he was thrown. And the blood upon his lips was drying. Her tears were salt as any brine. She sometimes kissed him, sometimes cried. Here lies the dearest she sits grieving over the body for a full three days, uh, sometimes uh, covering the body with leaves to protect it from the sun, until at last, near starvation, she's driven back to her father's house and there accuses the brothers of the murder. In some versions, they flee to the sea as sailors. In others, they're hanged. And after the hanging, this Irish version inserts some anatomists. 
The doctor's got their body is far too practice by him. But Mary's thoughts both night and day on her dead love did run. In the madhouse cell poor Mary dwells for her constant armor son. Now, the probable source story for this ballad, which I've been mentioning, is one of the tales told in the Decameron, written by uh, Giovanni Boccaccio around 1350. As uh, many of you may recall from your school days, uh, the Decameron is framed as a collection of stories told to pass the time during a journey undertaken by a group of travelers fleeing Florence during the plague. Sounds familiar? On the fourth day, uh, in response to a call for an unhappy love story for a change, one of the travelers, uh, Philomena, relates the tale of Lisabetta and Lorenzo. As in our ballad, Lorenzo is a suitor of unsuitably low status, engaging in secret rendezvous with Lisabetta. In a deceptively friendly overture, the brothers invite Lorenzo to go riding outside the city. And when they were come to a solitary place, such as best suited with their vile purpose, they ran suddenly upon Lorenzo, slew him, and afterward interred his body where it hardly could be discovered. When Lisabetta expresses concern over her lover's sudden absence, she's told the brothers sent him away on business. As in our ballad, the dead man appears in Lisabetta's dream, telling her where his body may be found. And so, recruiting her trusted attendant, Lisabetta ventures out, finding a spot, which being covered with some store of dried leaves and more deeply sunk than any other part of the ground thereabout, they dug not long till they found the body of murdered Lorenzo as yet very little corrupted or impaired, and then perceived the truth of her vision. Gladly she would have carried the whole body with her, secretly to bestow honorable internment on it, but it exceeded the compass of her ability. Wherefore, she could not have all his body, yet she would be possessed of a part and having brought a keen razor with her, by help of her lady, she divided the head from the body and wrapped it in a napkin, conveyed it onto her lap, and then laid the body in the ground again. Thus, being undiscovered by any day, they departed thence and arrived home in convenient time, where, being alone by themselves in the chamber, she washed the head over and over with her tears and bestowed infinite kisses thereon. <laughs> Not long after, the nurse, having brought her a large earthen pot, such as we use to set basil, marjoram, flowers, or other sweet herbs in, shrouding the head in a silken scarf, she put it into the pot, covering it with earth, and planting diverse roots of excellent basil therein, which she never watered but with her tears. 
rose water, or water distilled from the flowers of oranges. So long she held on in this mourning manner, and by the continual watering of the basil, and the putrefaction of the head buried in the pot of earth, it grew very flourishing and so odiferous that no other basil could possibly yield so sweet a savour. Neighbours begin noticing Elizabeth's peculiar behaviour and that in her grief, her bright beauty was defaced and her eyes sunk into her head by incessant weeping. Her brothers attempt to break the obsession by stealing away the pot, which only sends their sister into a more desperate state. <laughs> Wondering what special allure the pot contains, they dump out the earth and... Found the scarf of silk wherein the head of Lorenzo was wrapped, which was, as yet, not so much consumed, but by the locks of hair they knew it to be Lorenzo's head, whereat they became confounded with amazement, and before any could take notice thereof, they departed from Messina and went to dwell in Naples, Lisbetta crying and calling still for her pot of basil, and being unable to cease her mourning, died within a few days after. A bit ironically, in light of our consideration of the ballad, uh, the uh, teller Philomena ends her tale, uh, claiming that its inspiration was an old song, which begins with the lines... Cruel and unkind was the Christian that robbed me of my basil's bliss. Though Boccaccio only provides these two lines of the song, later scholars have guessed that uh, this hint may reference a, a particular Sicilian song that was later discovered in a 14th century manuscript, one which mentions stolen basil, but no murder, and uh, certainly no uh, potted heads. It seems the basil here would be symbolic, such as uh, the herbs referenced in an English folk song, the Sprig of Time, in which time symbolizes virginity and inevitably the uh, chronological time wasted by reckless lovers. Let no man steal your time, time. Let no Roughly three centuries later, we have some similar elements. Uh, we find a lover's remains, again planted in a pot, in Giambattista Basile's Pantamarone, or The Tale of Tales, a particularly early collection of fairy tales I believe I've mentioned before. It's the first story, the myrtle, referring to a magical sprig of myrtle purchased by a prince, um, one which is inhabited by, or uh, the shape taken by a fairy who, in her human form, becomes his lover. While the prince is away on a hunting trip, the fairy is set upon by seven jealous women and torn to pieces. In the prince's absence, his chamberlain, who's been charged with watering the pot in which the myrtle's planted, enters the prince's bedroom only to discover a grisly crime scene. <gasps> Biting his nails with vexation, 
he set to work, gathered up the remains of the flesh and bones that were left, and scraping the blood from the floor, he piled them all up in a heap in the pot. And having watered it, he made the bed, locked the door, put the key under the door, and taking to his heels, ran away out of the town. Thanks to the Chamberlain uh, replanting the fairy's remains, she's able to regenerate through the myrtle and comes back to identify her would-be killers. The prince then is given permission by the king to marry the fairy, and at his wedding, he proposes an entertainment in which guests suggest punishments for the perpetrators of this grisly attack. Unaware the fairy has already identified them, the seven wicked women are also in attendance, and fearing that they will be exposed if they plead mercy for the guilty parties, suggests that the perpetrators be confined forever in the king's dungeon, and thus sends themselves to this fate which is immediately carried out on the king's orders. Some of the Decameron's tales were already being translated into English by the 1520s, and the stories had also apparently reached German audiences around the same time, as versions of the tale of Elisabetta and Lorenzo were written by the poet, playwright, and cobbler, Hans Sachs, who wrote for the Meisterzinger guilds that recited or sung poetry, as in uh, Wagner's opera, the Meisterzinger of Nuremberg, in which uh, Sachs is the uh, titular character. Sachs uh, produced two versions of the tale that we know about, one in 1515 and another in 1548, a... Uh, narrative poem, and a play for seven actors. His uh, versions hew closely to Boccaccio's tale, but for his insertion of a blood-spattered linden, or lime tree, signifying the site where the victim's body would be found, uh, the uh, linden being particularly rich in symbolic associations in Germany. By uh, 1820, John Keats had reworked Boccaccio's story into a poem, Isabella, his version of uh, Lisabetta, for a taste of his poem, we'll hear a bit on uh, Isabella and her attendant as they've just procured Lorenzo's head. In anxious secrecy, they took it home, and then the prize was all for Isabel. She combed its wild hair with a golden comb, and all around each eye's sepulchral cell pointed each fringed lash the smeared loam with tears, as chilly as a dripping well. She drenched away, and still she combed and kept sighing all day, and still she kissed and wept. Then there's Keats' vivid description of the brothers' response to Isabella's growing mania. Yet they contrived to steal the basil pot and to examine it in the secret place. The thing was vile with green and livid spot, and yet they knew it was Lorenzo's face. The poem is still fairly well known today, but was especially so during the poet's lifetime, and after his death became a relatively popular subject for artists, particularly so with the pre-Raphaelites, one featured in paintings by John Everett Millay, John William Waterhouse, and in a particularly vivid rendering by William Holman Hunt. As for the origins of English ballad, presumably in the mid to late 1800s, 
It uh, wouldn't have been likely to have come through the rarefied world of poets and academic painters, but it seems possible that the source might have been a play by Zachs translated into English, or a derivative work may have uh, made it to the popular stage or appeared in a broadside, though there's no specific record of this. Despite the striking resemblance of the earlier part of Boccaccio's story and the ballad, similar elements uh, such as brothers murdering sisters suitors and uh, ghostly visitations revealing a murder can be found in other songs and might have been borrowed into the ballad in question. It's not something we'll ever really know for sure, unfortunately. And for his sake you shall be hung. Another interesting iteration of the story comes from Denmark, from the pen of Hans Christian Andersen, his 1872 story, The Rose Elf, or The Elf of the Rose, he described as being derived from an Italian folk song. And here he may be suggesting the story originates with the song that's mentioned in Boccaccio's story, but it's more a uh, reworking of that story with a bit of the myrtle thrown in, as we'll see. Typical of Anderson's tales, the Rose Elf is uh, steeped in tragedy. It begins with an invisibly tiny elf who makes his home in roses, observing two lovers, sadly bidding each other farewell in an arbor. The man explains that the woman's brother, who does not approve of their relationship, is sending him far away on business, and the weeping maiden gives him a rose as a farewell token into which the elf leaps. But as the man is making his way home, he's set upon by the brother who decapitates him and buries him beneath a linden tree. Having uh, tumbled out of the rose during the uh, assault, the elf ends up in a leaf dropped from the tree into the hair of the murderer digging the grave. In this manner, he makes his uh, way to the uh, home of the brother and sister. That night, the little elf crept quietly out of the withered leaf, slipped into the ear of the sleeping girl, and told her, as in a dream, the dreadful story of the murder. He described the spot in the woods where her brother had killed her sweetheart, and the place under the linden tree where the body was buried, and then whispered, And so that you may not think this is all a dream, you will find a withered leaf of the tree on your bedspread. And when she awoke, she found the leaf. Following the elf's directions the next day, the girl discovers her lover's grave. She would gladly have taken the body home with her, but since that would be impossible, She took up the pale head with its closed eyes, kissed the cold mouth, and with a trembling hand, brushed the dirt from the beautiful hair. This, at least, I can keep, she wept. She returns home with the severed head and a sprig of jasmine from the spot where her lover's blood was spilled. The head she buries in a pot over which she plants the jasmine which soon produces blooms. Her sad days and nights are passed crying and kissing the flowers, until one day, overcome with grief, she passes from this life as the little elf whispers comforting words in her ear. 
Declaring the pot of jasmine his inheritance, the brother then removes it to his own room. And that night... While the evil brother was asleep in his bed, beside the fragrant jasmine, the flowers opened, and out of each blossom came a tiny spirit, invisible, but armed with a sharp little poisoned spear. First, they crept into his ears and told him wicked dreams. Then, they flew across his lips and pierced his tongue with their poison darts. The Rose Elf, meanwhile, is off attempting to marshal an army of bees to sting the brother to death. But by the time they arrive, the Jasmine has already done him in. Probably the only death by flower darts in all of literature, certainly the most well-deserved. But lovers keeping lovers' heads is not just the stuff of charming fairy tales. One can find at least a handful of cases uh, in the annals of history in England, for example. After Sir Walter Raleigh was executed by James I in 1618, his wife, Elizabeth Throckmorton, had his head embalmed. And for the next 29 years of her life, she carried with her a red velvet bag containing her late spouse's mummified head. Head and bag passed to their son, Caro, who died in 1666 and was reburied in 1680 with Raleigh's head. The head of a loved one, albeit not a lover, was kept by Margaret Roper, daughter of Sir Thomas More after More's execution in 1532. As was the custom for those deemed traitors, after execution, More's head was boiled, then placed on a pike, along with others convicted of the same, on Traitor's Gate of London Bridge. When the heads became a little less uh, fresh after a couple of weeks, they'd be tossed into the Thames, but in Moore's case, his daughter was there to bribe the individual responsible for the tossing and obtained the head, which she then preserved in spices and kept as a sort of relic for the duration of her life. When she died in 1544, she was buried with the head in the family vault of St. Dunstan's in Canterbury. In 1824, the vault was opened and her corpse was found, still clasping the leaden box containing Moore's skull which was put on display in a grilled niche in the vault where it remains today. Perhaps inspired by cases such as these, Shakespeare in his play Henry VI, Part Two, has Henry's Queen Margaret throughout the play to the point of absurdity carry about the head of her illicit lover, the treacherous Suffolk, much to the irritation of the king, presumably. If you've had a bit of a problem imagining a lover's devotion to a rotting head, we'll now switch gears to something that may make a bit more sense, namely uh, lover's heads as the object of terror and disgust rather than romantic sentiment and attachment. The first of these could be regarded as an Arthurian shaggy dog story, a werewolf story actually, one that meanders in the classic shaggy dog mode and likewise can't be expected to deliver the expected payoff, though it does provide us with the preserved head of a murdered lover. It's a particularly weird tale called Arthur and Gorlagon, 
probably composed in 14th century Wales and extracted from a Latin folio of that era held in Oxford's Bodleian Library. So weird, in fact, that some scholars have suggested it was actually composed as a joke or parody. It begins during a Pentecost feast at which Arthur bestows on his Guinevere a very long and public kiss, quite embarrassing to the queen. She accuses him of knowing nothing about women, which, in typical Arthurian style, instigates a quest, with Arthur riding off to the castle of King Gorgol, a uh, famously wise ruler from whom one might reasonably expect some worthy insights. Gorgol, however, offers nothing but a meal and sends Arthur and his knights off to the castle of his brother, who does exactly the same, sending Arthur to the castle of a third sibling, King Gorlagon. At the king's table that evening, Gorlagon offers to tell a story in response to Arthur's query. His tale is about a nameless king who also happens to be a secret werewolf. His closely guarded means of transformation is a magical sapling which, when struck against a man, turns him into a werewolf, as long as these magic words are spoken. Be a wolf, be a wolf, and have the understanding of a man. His uh, not particularly faithful queen spies on one such transformation and steals the sapling in hopes of transforming her husband, not into a werewolf with a man's mind, but a wolf, pure and simple, one which will remain ignorant of her lovers and affairs. But when she later attacks him with the magic sapling, she misspeaks as she strikes him and he changes to a werewolf equipped as usual with human understanding. Nonetheless, a werewolf can't sit on the throne, so our werewolf king flees to the wilds and the queen believes herself free to now carry on with her youthful lover with whom she promptly bears two children. Meanwhile, the werewolf has fathered wolf cubs of his own with a she-wolf he meets, but has not forgotten his revenge, and one evening he... Rushed unexpectedly into the tower, and finding the two little boys of whom the aforesaid youth had become the father by his wife, playing by chance under the tower without anyone to guard them, he attacked and slew them, and tearing them cruelly limb from limb. After the attack, he's chased from the kingdom, but in the wilds he encounters another king out hunting, one who also has married an unfaithful wife. While the men in the king's hunting party warn him that this is the werewolf others have been hunting, the monarch recognizes in the creature's demeanor something... Rather like one who craved for pardon. And as the beast ingratiates himself, licking the royal foot in the royal stirrup, the king put down his right hand to caress the wolf and gently stroked his head and scratched his ears. Then the king seized the wolf and endeavored to lift him up to him, but the wolf, perceiving that the king was desirous of lifting him up, leapt up and joyfully sat upon the neck of the charger in front of the king. After some happy days hunting stags for his master, the werewolf is left to the queen's care as the king must undertake a journey. Happening to be chained in the royal bedchamber, the werewolf witnesses the queen and her lover, who serves as her steward, as they... Mounted the bed together, little heeding the 
presence of the wolf. And when he saw they had no intention of desisting from the iniquity on which they had embarked, he gnashed his teeth and dug up the ground with his paws, and venting his rage all over his body with awful howls, he stretched the chain with such violence that it snapped in two. When loose, he rushed with fury upon the steward and threw him from the bed and tore him so savagely that he left him half dead. But to the queen, he did no harm at all, but only gazed upon her with venom in his eye. To explain the steward's wounds, the queen tells the king upon his return that the injuries were suffered in battling the werewolf as he devoured their son, whom she's actually secreted away in the dungeon. Hardly had she finished speaking, when lo, the wolf, hearing the king approach, sprang forth from the bedchamber and rushed into the king's embraces, as though he well deserved them, jumping about joyfully and gambling with greater delight than he had ever done before. But the king realizes the beast would behave quite differently if guilty is charged, and his suspicions are confirmed when the werewolf breaks into the locked dungeon to reveal the queen's subterfuge. Running forward, he took the infant from its cradle in his shaggy arms and gently held it up to the king's face for a kiss. The plot now uncovered, the king orders the steward flayed alive and the queen drawn and quartered as things were done in those days. And he then accompanies the werewolf king to his own kingdom where his adulterous queen is tortured to reveal the secrets necessary to transform the beast back so that he can again sit upon the throne. As King Gorlagon concludes the story, it's revealed to Arthur that his host actually is, or was, that werewolf. But Arthur has one more question, not about the story, but about a guest at the table. Who is that woman sitting opposite you, of a sad countenance, and holding before her in a dish a human head bespattered with blood, who has wept whenever you have smiled? and who has kissed the blood-stained head whenever you have kissed your wife during the telling of your tale. As you've likely guessed, this is Gorlagon's faithless wife, the one who stole the magic sapling at the beginning of the tale. I subjected her to this penalty only, namely, that she should always have the head of her paramour before her, and that when I kissed the wife I had married in her stead, she should imprint kisses on him, for whose sake she had committed that crime. And I had the head embalmed to keep it free from putrefaction, for I knew that no punishment could be more grievous to her than a perpetual exhibition of her great wickedness in the sight of all the world. A wonderfully strange tale. I'm not sure what it taught Arthur about women, but I'm sure it was uh, helpful. Our werewolf story isn't the only tale from Britain involving a lover's head employed as a token of punishment. We have one in The Palace of Pleasure, a collection of stories by John Painter, published in several volumes, first appearing in 1566, 
plots are borrowed from classical literature and earlier writers, including Boccaccio, though not in the example we're considering. Uh, that one is the 57th story in the collection titled A punishment more rigorous than death of a husband toward his wife that had committed adultery. It involves a gentleman by the name of Bernage sent to Germany by King Charles I of France. He arrives at the castle of an unnamed lord who has a meal prepared for his guest and conveyed him into a parlor well hanged with fair tapestry and the meat being set upon the table and he required to sit down. He perceived a woman coming forth behind the hanging who was so beautiful as might be seen saving that her head was all shaven and she was apparelled all in black. After she had eaten a little, she called for a drink, which one of the servants brought unto her in a strange cup, for it was the head of a dead man, trimmed with silver, whereof she drank twice or thrice. Bernage observes her dine in silence, after which she departs, and his host, having noticed his guest's curiosity, offers an explanation. The woman is his wife, whom he discovered with another man doing things improper for any man to do to her but myself. Witnessing this, he lunges from his hiding place and stabs the man to death. For his wife, he devises a more enduring torment. He locks her in her chambers. In the closet of which chamber I have placed the anatomy of her friend. Meaning his headless body hung there to prevent her forgetting her indiscretion and uh, the hollowed out head serving the same purpose when she's away from her chamber at table and then add to this her head being shaved to further impress upon her a state of penance. Bernage suggests that this all seems a bit harsh and Painter adds a happy ending with the Lord eventually ending this treatment and the couple's marital discord ended. She's even reported to have borne the king a couple of children after all this. So apparently the prescribed treatment was just the ticket. Something along these lines again, but beyond the purely literary, is supposed to have also happened in Russia with the head of the lover of Empress Catherine, the wife of Peter the Great. The uh, eventually headless man was Willem Mons, a German who served the Empress as a secretary, and said in other ways. In 1724, the Tsar had Mons publicly decapitated, possibly because, or at least on record, because of uh, embezzlement, but uh, the illicit relationship is widely accepted as the uh, actual reason for the execution. While uh, Catherine obviously chose not to attend, some stories have Peter ordering the driver of the royal sleigh to pass the spot of execution for Catherine's benefit. While another account has Catherine far away at the time practicing the minuet. In any case, uh, Willem's head was preserved, pickled in a jar of spirits, and reportedly placed in Catherine's bedchamber on Peter's orders as a sort of warning against uh, further infidelities. After Catherine's death, the head ended up in Peter's Kunstkammer, his uh, museum of art and curiosities, alongside jars of pickled fetuses, a stuffed pangolin, eight-legged lamb, and the like. Unfortunately, uh, more modern sensibilities eventually prevailed, and by the 1790s, this ghoulish memento had been removed from the exhibition. 
To uh, end our show, we'll have a quick look at a much more recent case along these lines, a 2016 incident from Texas that went to trial a few days before Halloween. A Bellmead man pleaded guilty today to murder after being accused of stabbing his wife to death and then decapitating her. According to the report in the Waco Tribune, Davy Dosat confessed to the crime after police were called to the home by his brother, who reported that his sibling had been making weird statements and asking funny questions. While Dosat confessed to smoking marijuana with his wife that day, police speculated that uh, other drugs may have been involved. Dosat offered no further explanation for the deed other than to say that the uh, decapitation was related to a battle between good and evil. With uh, him being on the side of good, I'd presume. Police were able to get Dozon outside and later found his wife Natasha's head in the freezer. There was no testimony explaining why Dozon had uh, stored his wife's head in the family freezer. But perhaps, as in this song by the band Arrogant Worms, it might have had something to do with cryogenics. When I'm dead, put my head in the freezer. Wrap aside the corn and the peas. Maybe dead, but I am not deceased here. One day science will reanimate me. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen. The reviews really help raise the show's profile, even if it's just a short sentence or no words at all, just a star rating. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing toward the uh, more than 100 hours of work I end up putting into each of these. Uh, pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive a short extra episode in the uh, marvelous and rare format we provided a sample of a while back. Uh, we also offer a Bowden Sickle candle featuring the skeletal remains of St. Notburga, as well as two different mystery kits, each with its unique offerings. And, and we still offer my Krampus book and the show soundscapes you hear in the background as separate tracks. I want to thank our new patrons, Judith Bicara, Patricia Gibson, Betts Crockett, Melissa Palmer, Robert Capel, Christopher Chambers, Blynn Emerson, and Bambi. And thanks to Dr. Gogol and the Fattest Leech for their kind reviews. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandsickle.com. There you'll find links to our Patreon, a Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram accounts, along with show notes that feature plenty of imagery and links to material used in the program, like the songs that are featured. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.